China is flexing its muscles, tormenting Taiwan. Russia continues to batter Ukraine. There's a Tesla owner that don't want to lose his key, so he implants a chip in his wrist so he don't ever have to worry about it. <clears throat> the Satanic Temple a school district is allowing them to host back-to-school festivities. There's evil in high places. I just want to encourage everyone this morning to leave that outside the gate. Leave it out in the parking lot. We walk through these doors it's just like entering into the gates of thanksgiving. I want to encourage everyone this morning that we are here to worship. It's a time set apart to let those things, those negative things, outside. And worship our creator this morning. So if everybody would turn to Psalms 100. Just want to take a little bit of time and read through this psalm and just gather some thoughts from it. But my, my thought is the call to worship. We're here to worship. And what does that mean? What does that look like? John Piper says, true worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. Psalms 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who makes us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, 
and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. We come to worship, I don't think, and I think somewhat we've been culturized, Americanized, suppressed, I don't know, but worship shouldn't be passive. We come to worship, it should be an active engagement of worshiping God. And it says, they enter into his gates of thanksgiving. This goes back, if you do like a word picture of is the, the Israelites or the Jews going, they'd have to go through the gates of the city before they would get to the temple and worship God. So this is, this is an active psalm. It is something that we do, our part. We engage in worship. And I, I, I kind of wonder, I said, well, why don't we, why are we not excited about worship? Why do we not just, just really get into it? I'm not saying you don't. I'm talking to myself. But sometimes it's like, okay, why, why do I worship? What's my reason to worship? And if you look at this psalm, I'm going to break it down into four parts. Verse 1 and 2 as one part. 3 as a part. 4 as a part. And 5. 1 and 2... And four is our activity. It's our praise. Joyful. Serve. Gladness. Singing. Enter. Thanksgiving. Praise. Bless. Those are all our attributes, our, our actions back to God. And, and you think, okay, that sounds good, but why, why do I do that? And I think that's the element I want to look at today. We want to do that because... Verse 3, know that he is Lord. He is God. He made us. We are his people. He is good. He has mercy. His truth endures for all generations. That's the reason we come and we worship this morning. is because what God is and what he has done. And... And all the negatives of life, I, I tell you, I probably had one of the most challenging weeks at work in my life. And it's so refreshing to stop and hear the Spirit of the Lord and to worship together with believers. There's nothing like it. It's so refreshing. We are called to worship. Worship is a, it's an honor to worship. Um... Yeah, I don't want to take a whole lot of time, but we are here to come and worship our Creator, to give our hearts to Him, our, our attention to Him, to be active in it, to be responsive. A.W. Tozer said, The true worship is to be so personally and hopelessly in love with God that the idea of a transfer of affection never even remotely exists. So, so where are we today? How much of our time is focused on Russia or whatever? Or is our time focused on serving our creator? The one that has created us, sustains us, never will forsake us. I think we have um, a huge responsibility to give back to God for all the promises he has for us. So, we're going to take prayer requests this morning. If anybody has a prayer request, a praise report, we would love to hear them. Bev? Okay. The girls at Torreon, first full week of school. Sue.
Sue's sister in the hospital. All right, let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we approach you this morning. And as we enter into the gates of thanksgiving and into your throne room, we feel very small, unworthy, undone. But Lord, we know that you take care of your people. We know that you care for each one of us. And we also know that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can enter in to your presence. As an undone person covered by the blood, we can approach you. And we just call you our Father. And we just thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I pray that today's worship service would be a blessing to you. That all honor and glory would be given to you. That our thought process and our start of a new week would give you honor that we would go through life without bogged down of the cares and the things around us that easily beset us and like Grayson said this morning in Sunday school that we would put on the full armor of God because your word is alive and powerful and we praise you for that Lord we just pray for those at Torian, those teaching their first week, Lord, just pray that you will continue to give them wisdom and be a light to those people, that your name would be glorified. Pray for Sue's sister, Lord, as she's suffering illness and in the hospital, Lord, just pray mighty that you as a great physician would touch her and heal her all in your will. And what you know is what is best. Lord, I just pray that and lift up Kidron before you as he prepares to open your word. That truth would prevail. And that you would just anoint him with your spirit of power. And that your name would be glorified. Lord, we pray for the rulers of this country. We pray for our president. Lord, honestly, it's hard sometimes, but we lift him up before you. You set up who you will, and we just want to give you honor. Help us to let our light shine as we go out in this dark world. Help us to be faithful community people. Help us to show the love of Jesus wherever we go. Thank you so much for Jesus and for his willingness to come and live and die on the cross of Calvary and to raise victorious over death, hell, and the grave and sitting up in heaven that we can be there with you someday, Lord. We're so thankful for that opportunity, that promise, and that security. Lord, we love you. We ask for forgiveness where we fail. Increase our faith, Lord, every day. And we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Greetings in the name of Jesus, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ um, is a greeting that you'll find Paul use in, I believe, all of his letters in some way or another, and so I greet you the same way. Open your Bibles to um, Isaiah chapter 55. I would like to spend most of our time today in the 55th chapter of Isaiah. I, over the past couple of weeks, I was convicted of being not just really spending my time correctly and being in the Word. And I wish I would have called Jeff because what he just said to us there in the opening, if he'd have said that to me two weeks ago, these past two weeks would have been a whole lot easier because I could have just listened to him. Um, thank you, Jeff. Good stuff. Because that's the answer, and so that's kind of how I got to where I'm at today, and it feels like it would be helpful to let you know that, that I didn't feel like I was spending enough time in the Word, I guess, is where I ended up at, and we'll maybe keep working with that. I realized that I like to be entertained, and I'm easily distracted, so some of the political things that he mentioned, or other things he said to leave outside um, I could leave them outside for a little bit but they were always over there like a loud flashing sign drawing my attention and I wanted to go consume that um, think about it for yourself whatever those distractions might be but today for worship then when I found that I dedicated myself to the word I there, there was a certain appeal to my intellect and so, or, or to knowledge, to understanding of how deep and how rich the Word of God is that I want today's worship to be an appeal to your intellect. Um, sometimes I've stood up here and I had a great story that I found that inspired me and I thought it would grab your attention like that loud flashing distraction and, and pull it away and say, come listen. Um, Today, read these words and, and pay attention. I want it to be an appeal to the intellect. And even, he talked about distractions. You could come with a weight. And coming here to worship, we are worshiping the God of the universe. Lay that weight down in front of him at his cross and pay attention to his word here today. When you leave, it'll still be there and you can pick it up. Hopefully, you'll find it to be lighter. Whatever it is, health problems, family problems, come into worship and lay it down. I would say this. Um, I'm talking about not being distracted and being in worship. And children are not a distraction. God gave them to us. My excellent wife and my young son may need to leave the service. That's not a distraction. Children are great to be here. The noise they have is not a distraction. God gave them to us and they are a joy for sure. Um, so I, over this conviction, I'll say, of my propensity to be distracted, I, I started to examine my level of dedication or my zeal for the Lord and I really found myself to be complacent. And, and one of the things that started... I was obviously I knew that this Sunday was going to come and it was my responsibility to lead this worship service from this pulpit and I just had this feeling like I don't even know what I'm going to talk about. That's the great God of the universe like it, you shouldn't really feel that way but I was just complacent and I through some rambling and searching I come across a quote and I started reading about some history history kind of after I got out of high school and started growing up a little bit, I started getting fascinated by history when I had just learned all of it just because I had to. But I read a quote from Martin Luther, um, which you'll readily recognize his name. He was a German priest in the early 1500s, and he went, after some spiritual experience, he went to be a monk. He decided that he was going to be a monk, and he said that if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. But in his then studies, in his dedication to, to even um, 
laying himself aside and going hungry and studying for hours in the life of a monk, he found that he was increasingly terrified by the wrath of God. This wasn't working. And moreover, he would read Romans chapter 1, verse 17 that says the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And he become more and more certain that he was not righteous, so there was no way that he could live by faith because he wasn't righteous to start off with. And all the things he'd learned, and this is the quote that, that, that caught my attention, that as I am in the middle of examining my own dedication, he said, at last meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely faith. So you don't have to be righteous first to have faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered into paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. I felt myself here in this complacency. It's like, I'm not ever sure I've experienced that by reading the Word of God and, and, and understanding it. I, I don't... Have I had a revelation like that? Or, or can I read it today and make a new discovery about something I'm doing and change and, and feel like that I've went to paradise and this, this new understanding has just gave me this motivation and of course it kind of caught me because I didn't meditate day and night. I was, I was struggling to pay attention. I was easily distracted. And I just seen dedication there like the, the idea of the understanding, that's why I say I want this to be an intellectual appeal, just the understanding knocked him down. And then I read, so I'm, I'm, I was distracted, so I was reading all kinds of stuff. You've probably read about, so this would be on the other end of the spectrum. This is a spectrum. This is a really religious man, Martin Luther, some 500 years ago. Here currently today, just recently, the James Webb Space Telescope has went online, they've started, it started sending back images of the cosmos that are just beautiful and awe-inspiring, but, and you don't really pick this up a whole lot of places, these images that are coming back are blatantly and repeatedly contradicting the Big Bang hypothesis, which has been defended for decades as unquestionable truth. The Big Bang being that the beginning of the universe was not like Genesis says that God created it, but there is a theory that um, astronomers and cosmologists and, and all that, it started actually around 100 years ago um, that the, there was just an explosion and, and our universe was created. Kind of bizarre. Um, people really do believe this, and so there was an astronomer at the University of Kansas in Lawrence Seeing all of these images coming back and starting to realize these contradictions said, right now I find myself laying awake at three in the morning wondering if everything I've done is wrong. And I'm kind of like, yeah, yep, it is. You're, you're finally getting it. And that's pretty neat too because God can, uh, in, in His creation, in His amazing understanding, and, and people that it looked like to me weren't ever going to get it so because they're so thoroughly deceived by this. It's like... Ha, now you're getting it, finally, like it's about time. That's not how God looks at it. I think we'll see in Isaiah 55 here um, that His ways are higher than ours. So that probably wasn't a really nice feeling of me. But then I seen like, even though she's totally wrong, she has a very high level of dedication to like this, this contradiction she sees in her beliefs. It wakes her up in the middle of the night. This is concerning. That's dedication. Um, so I went to the Word, and, and eventually it cured me of, of all of my complacency and, and just lack of, of feeling inspiration just by reading this, this Isaiah 55 and studying it. This chapter is, um, I, I would say it's like bulletin board material, or it's like the plaque you see on the wall, and we, we read that, and we know that's from the Bible, and those are familiar verses. And I even wondered, like, why would I come here? But a couple things caught my attention um, that, that we'll find. And it was convicting to me of what I was experiencing. And one of them is that there's a question in this. As we go through it, we'll see. It says, for what reason do you spend money for that which is not bread or your labor for what doesn't satisfy? 
So we'll get into that. But I wanted us to remember then as this intellectual call to the Word, back to history a little bit. So 20 or so years past Martin Luther, there was a man named William Tyndall who was a reformer. Um, and he set out to make a translation of the Bible from some of Luther's ideas, which Luther was German, and he had translated the Bible from the old languages of Hebrew and Greek into German. And this William Tyndall was an Englishman, and he was going to translate the Bible into English. Some of the, the ways he translated words and the things that he came up with directly contradicted the powers that be at that day, the church that was in charge, such that he didn't finish, he, he did a lot of work, but he didn't finish his translation and he was executed because of it in 1536. Um, a man named Thomas Cromwell took up the work after that. He was a minister to the King Henry VIII, I believe it was, who had executed Tyndall through politics and everything. This, this Cromwell continued the work of the translation of the Bible into the English language. By this time, the printing press has already been invented, so once the translation is done, it can quickly be printed and distributed. And so they started to started the work um, in France, I believe it was. No, it wasn't France. It was in Spain. Because they started to translate and print the Bible in Spain, and the Spanish Inquisition was on. So the authorities found this work, and they found it to be heresy in their mind. So they stopped um, the, the translation, but being industrious as they were, because there was so much poverty, they took the paper, they were printing this new translation of the Bible on and sold it for scrap. And Cromwell found this out and he went and bought the scrap paper and smuggled the paper to Europe and continued the translation. So he, he just went and bought and continued, continued this on. I found that to be fascinating. The reason I bring all this up is because in the beginning, of my talk here, I told you all to open your Bibles to chapter 55 of Isaiah. And all of these things predate us in history that we all have a Bible laying on our laps. Eventually when this translation was finished, Cromwell said, I want one of these Bibles, which were really expensive at the time to, to produce. Everybody was poor, so it was hard to get one. I want one in every church. History will tell us that that Bible, the great Bible, was chained to the pulpit when, when it got to the church. Some historians will say, well, the reason it was chained was because they wanted the leaders to be the interpreters of this word that they were giving to you, so they were keeping it under control, possibly so. Uh, other historians will say that everybody was so poor and this was so valuable that people would have stolen it had it not been chained to the pulpit. Probably also possibly so. Both could be true, but today on your lap, because of all these very dedicated people who woke up in the middle of the night, who prayed day and night, we have this. We take it for granted. I told you to open your Bible, and you did. So now as we move into looking at this, don't just leave it lay there. Read this and discern rightly. Discern for your sake, but discern for mine too, because... We need to continue to let this motivate us, and our worship needs to be in truth, like Jeff said. And if I say something that is not in truth, you hold the word, you can read with me in it and rightly discern and call me out on it. And I hope that you do. So, with that as a beginning, let's just work through this 55th chapter with the idea of laying the distractions aside and being intellectually inspired by this word because this particular passage here is rich. It is, it, I look at this when we start off here, uh, verse 1, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye by, and eat ye, come by wine and milk without money and without price. I can, I can see so many meanings in this first verse. starts off with ho. So these translators that the King James Version I'm reading would have been in the 1600s, some hundred years or so after that 
uh, great Bible translation, and they, they reference Tyndall's work a lot to get here, they almost give me a nautical feel when they use that word ho. Like think a sailor on a ship, land ho. And here we go, everyone that thirsteth come to the waters. That's almost like drinking, but then there's also this, this nautical feel that we're going to show up at the port, the waters, and there's everything there that we need, and there's going to be a transaction done here. But it's not in the normal way that we think about going to where we can buy what we need. We're going to go and buy without money. Now, I ended up titling the message that. I wrestled with the title for a while, but I titled it Buy Without Money because for me, when I was distracted, my money couldn't get me anywhere. I needed to invest my time but more than that, my thinking, I needed to connect with the Spirit of God. And I think what I get out of this is that to buy without money is to accept the truth of what's being said here and accept the truth that God exists and that the salvation that He provides. So we come and buy without money, come to the waters. Now there's also another way of looking at this. And we all, this is probably the first thing you think of when you read it, um, is that the, the qualification to come is that you need to be thirsty or you need to be poor. And that was one of my problems, was that I wasn't thirsty. Um, I did, however, with regards to the amount of spiritual workings inside of me, I was quite poor for, for a little bit there because it wasn't happening. Um, but you don't have to have that, kind of like Luther found out, come by and eat. So I see Isaiah 55 as a message to Israel. When it was wrote, Isaiah was a prophet in Israel, and I don't think, I should have looked this up, I don't think they had went into captivity yet. So we can see some, some almost prophecy of them they're going to go in captivity at the end of the chapter they get led out of captivity I also think and this is the obvious one to us now sitting here all these years later that this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ himself um, Jeremiah seventeen thirteen says that the Lord God is a fountain of waters Jesus said at the woman of at the well in John chapter 4 that I am or I have living water, and if you knew that, you would have asked me and I would have gave it to you, and you wouldn't have thirsted anymore. Um, so this is a prophecy. We, we, we see also a prophecy of Jesus, but then I think for us now, knowing that, this chapter prophesies to us of a future end-time event that we still know is coming. So, come ye to the waters, he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price." God is the waters. We go there. There's everything we need. We don't have to pay for it with money. We get sustenance, wine and milk, without money and without price. Without price kind of sounds like it's free. We can read that in the New Testament. It's free, but there's also the fact that there is no such thing as a free lunch. Somebody paid for what we're getting. And the price was high. But to us, there is no price. So the question then that struck me that brought my attention to this was, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? That would be all of the distractions that pull me away. I thought of several examples, and then I decided not to name them, because that would be mine. And I assume that as humans, we all have some that are the same and some that aren't. But apply this to yourself, and ask yourself, in your daily life, in your spiritual life, why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And God continues to provide. Hearken diligently. So at first, in the first two verses, He said, come, come, come. Now He says, listen, hearken diligently unto Me, and eat ye that which is good, and let, yourself delight its, let your soul delight itself in fatness. All you have to do is listen. Any of you children ever heard that? <laughs> If you would just listen to me. Um, eat that which is good. And delight your, let your soul delight itself in fatness. The, that fatness there kind of caught my attention. Um, 
Because as I understand God, I don't believe that He wants me to just revel in excess. And when I read fatness there, that's kind of what I thought about, like a, a lot of abundance. So should I be delighted with just an excessively large amount of whatever it is that I have? The Hebrew word there for fatness, I'm going to have to look, I wrote it down here, is deshin. And in all of the other places, I think except for one where this word is used in the Hebrew Bible, it's translated as ashes. So let's go look at one of those. And I want to explore this idea of your soul delighting itself in fatness. Go to Leviticus chapter 6 and we'll look at these ashes. It seems like every time I really get into an in-depth study, I find myself getting excited about the old sacrifices. So if that doesn't interest you, maybe pay attention here. We'll try to see if we can't pull it off this time. Um, verse 10. This is talking about the, the Levitical law. Um, we'll just jump right in here. It's really no easy way to introduce it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh and take up the ashes, there's that word, which the fire hath consumed, which the burnt offering with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. And he shall put off his garments and put on other garments and carry forth the ashes without the camp unto a clean place. So this priest, I think in previous verses, Maybe verse 9 there, it says that he, the priest that performs this function is of the line of Aaron. Or this man possibly had the possibility that sometime later he could be the high priest. Because the high priest had to come from the line of Aaron. This very man is in his ceremonial garb, in his best. He is one of the leaders of the religion of Israel of that day. And after the sacrifice is done, the burnt offering is totally consumed by fire. There's ashes left. And God has ordered it so that He would set those ashes aside. He would change His clothes and take then the ashes. So God has taken all parts of this sacrifice and ordered how it was done. Take the ashes. Take them outside the camp to a clean place, it says. So let's compare that then. I'm seeing a man who is of the highest rank in the religion being required to become a janitor and clean up after the sacrifices are all done and take it outside. And we are told in Isaiah 55 to delight yourself in ashes, if we were to translate it another way. So, turn over then. Let's see if we can make connection to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 27. And let's look at an account here then of what happened with Jesus our Lord. Matthew chapter 27 uh, verse 57, you recognize that the crucifixion has happened and all of the events that go along with that, Jesus has died. As we understand it, He has gave Himself for the ultimate sacrifice. When, verse 57, when the even was come, there was a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph who also himself was a disciple of Jesus or who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Now, a rich man does not need to beg because he's rich. He has a lot of money. So like the priest in the Old Testament, I see a change here. The priest had on his ceremonial garments and he changed into his, shall we say, janitorial garments. Here, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, begs for the body of Jesus. He has stepped down from his high place of richness. Pilate commanded the body to be delivered, and when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, there's clean, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock, which in other gospels we'll find this is outside the city or outside the camp. So I make the comparison then that to delight yourself in fatness in Isaiah 55 is to delight yourself just simply in the body of Jesus Christ. He is the sacrifice. What was left over after the sacrifice was done was laid in a clean place by a man who had 
been rich, but he was not too rich to do the work that God had for him to do. Maybe I'm not interpreting that correctly, but I found that to be a whole lot more palatable than delight my soul in excess. Now, God is abundant, so we can delight our soul in that, but our soul can also delight in the work that He has for us to do. However, like we've already established, the work will not save us. So don't, don't get me wrong there. Verse 3 in Isaiah 55, jumping around here a lot, so hopefully you kept your finger there. Verse 3, incline your ear. Here we go again. Come, 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 listen diligently. Now listen again and almost tilt your ear towards me like you need to hear this. And come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. All you have to do is hear. You have to understand. You have to hear. Your soul shall live and I will make you an everlasting I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David. We have been in our Sunday school studying 1 Samuel. We're getting deeply into uh, David. Let's go to actually 2 Samuel. I want to define what these sure mercies are. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 12, let's go down there. This, if I'm remembering right, is a prophet speaking the words of God to David near the end of his life. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away from thee. So David's son was Solomon, and in some respects this prophecy was fulfilled, or this promise was fulfilled for Solomon, but the throne that lasts forever is Jesus Christ. And the mercies that he did not take away, like he did from Saul, continue. Um, so in Isaiah 55, when we read about the covenant that lasts forever, I think... To the Israelites that read this reading in the day that it was wrote, they remembered David and they said, yeah, yep, we, we know what that's talking about. But I think for us, we need to see the sure mercies of David is Jesus Christ. And, and David was like a type or a symbol of Jesus Christ that was to come. When, when I find writing like this, that was 700 years before Jesus was even born, it convinces me more than more that this is the divinely inspired Word of God. There's no way that they could have come up with this so many years before it even happened. And to them, the understanding was still to God, to the God of Israel, as they understood it. Come, 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 listen. At that point, they probably weren't doing it. Um, so that's what I would understand to be the sure mercies of David. Now, in, the, in these first five verses, I guess I didn't say this in the beginning, we have come three times, we have listened twice, and now we're going to behold. Verse 4, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people and a leader and commander to the people. I think when you read this as an Israelite at that time, you would have probably thought, yeah, David, he was a man after God's own heart. We read the Psalms. I think this is talking about Jesus again here. He is the witness to the people because the words leader and commander are in the New Testament. We, we come across the captain of our salvation, the prince of life. And, and these words are similar here. I, I think that's what Isaiah is speaking about here. Uh, verse 5 again, look, behold, thou shalt call a nation that knowest not and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. The 
language of the Messiah or the prophecy of the Messiah gets even clearer and clearer with this to me. However, the nations that did not know thee would be the Gentile nations. So, um, God called Israel. They were His chosen people. But here, Isaiah is saying, not only that, but I'm going to call what we now know as everybody else. This, this Messiah is going to come. He is going to be of the seed of David, and He did fulfill that promise. But the nations that didn't even know you will run to you because of the Lord. And in this, I, I also see that God calls. And that's what it says in the beginning. Behold, thou shalt call a nation. I see that as God the Father calling. And the nations that didn't know ran unto you because of the, G- of the salvation that Jesus the Son gives. And I, I think that's what it's saying. And then God the Father glorified Jesus the Son. And then in our adoption as sons today, we live in His grace and, and in His glory. So then, moving into verse 6, this, this starts to take a little bit of a turn here um, for the chapter. And there was a verse I wanted to talk about. We, we get down to, to verse 6, and I, I think I, I start to feel this talking about then. Come, come, come. Listen. Behold the salvation. That, that, that's just what it speaks to me. Like, behold Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 11, he's talking about, again here, he's talking about the nation of Israel, and he's dealing with the question of whether God has rejected His people or not. And he makes this statement, so we don't have time really to go the whole way through chapter 11 of Romans, but he makes this statement, um, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. What I see here, some translations will maybe tell you um, that they can't be revoked. What I see when Paul says that the gifts and the calling of God, I see the gifts and calling here, like just come to the water. If you're thirsty, just come and drink. It's no price, no money. Buy it, buy in, it's, it's free. Somebody paid for it, but not you. And this was all before repentance. You don't have to repent. God is calling you. He called the nation that didn't even know Him. And so now these, these last verses of this chapter, 6 through 13, start to deal with the repentance that happens when we actually do look and behold that Messiah, Jesus Christ, and see the salvation that He has provided. Verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. This should be shocking to us. Um, if we are a Gentile nation, or if we are a 42-year-old man living in the United States of America who is just feeling apathetical, and the Spirit's not working with me yet, I need to be ready for Sunday in two weeks, but I'm just not feeling it yet. Maybe tomorrow God will reveal something to me. I'm going to go consume that distraction that I wanted to. This verse shocks me awake because it says, seek the Lord while He may be found. It clearly insinuates that this won't always be the case. He will not always be able to be found. Neither will He always be near. So we should seek Him immediately. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake His way. This is what we need to do. So we're going to start seeing um, a couple thoughts together. Look at, while we're reading this, look at the ways and thoughts. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Don't be going and spending money on things that aren't bread. And let him return to the Lord. Returning to the Lord tells me that we have been there once. We need to come back or we need to turn around and go back. We need to repent of even, even apathy, even getting distracted and not reading the Word and not eating the bread of life, which is Jesus. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, 
saith the Lord. In our opening verse, we could start to see this idea of, and this is how our culture works and how our world works, if you want something, you have to pay for it. But God's thoughts are higher than ours. So uh, in verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't charge us for that. He knows we need it. He knows we need the salvation. So he provided it and he paid for it himself. That's the difference. My thoughts are wicked. My ways are wicked and my, I'm an unrighteous man and my thoughts need to be turned away from and I need to make God's ways my ways and my thoughts. And it's totally contrary to the flesh and what I would normally or what I would instinctively try to do like I did with the lady in the James Webb telescope and I laughed at her. <laughs> you don't have a clue. I got it all figured out. That would be showing how God Actually, I should be excited that God is calling her also. And I should participate in that calling with any limited amount of knowledge that I have and, and desire mercy for her as I have experienced myself. Verse 10, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. This reminds me of what Grayson talked about here this morning. Um, in, our, in our normal daily life, I think God has created everything and we should always see the examples. So I think possibly one of the reasons I was feeling the way I was feeling is there are all these signs in our earth right now and, and we read about the harvest here. We know the harvest is coming. We were driving down the road the other day and, and one of the children asked, how does the farmer know that it's time to go out and harvest the crops? So we start looking. It's like, well, if you look down at the bottom of the corn, it's starting to change colors. And if you look at the ears, they're starting to fall down. And I think... What do you farmers say? That means they drop. Is that correct? I'm not a farmer. Um, there are all these signs out there that the farmers are intently focused on, but the rest of us can get as well. Like God has created this entire setup of our life as almost a metaphor um, that year by year our life cycles and we have seasons and God is always sending his word out and it won't come back void as the rain comes down and waters the earth. So we need to be reminded of this and called back to this scripture and realize that when he says in his word, what he says in the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelation, and I want to get there in a few minutes, it will happen. We can be certain of that. We read here the prophecy of the coming Messiah and it happened. We have the New Testament to tell us and we jump forward and like, it, it's, it's so clear to us. may not have been to those folks back then, but it is to us now. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Uh, some interesting phraseology there. We'll keep going. Verse 13, Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name for an everlasting sign that be, shall be cut off. The myrtle tree caught my attention here. Um, for the thorn shall come up a fir or a cypress tree. The myrtle tree, the word there, the Hebrew word is haddis, I believe. And then we go and find in the book of Esther, Esther's given name was Hadassah. The the myrtle tree is used, the leaves are used, and maybe even some of the flowers and the, the fruit of it are crushed and used for medicine. So in the crushing, it more releases its scent. And in here, I'm, I'm seeing the messianic prophecy again. The myrtle tree releases its scent, releases its value, and it's an everlasting sign. This is Jesus. He's an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I'm, I'm abbreviating some of the things here because we're... we're quickly running through our time. So, Isaiah 55, 
if I would have been then, I examined myself and I say, I was so easily distracted, am I dedicated enough now to have heard a letter or read or listened to a prophet of the Lord? You know, there were 700 years in between the fulfillment of this, and even when Jesus came, there's a lot of people that weren't certain that He was the Messiah that this was prophesying. If I would have read that, say, 400 years in, would I have been dedicated enough to search it out and find and be convicted and change my life by just reading the Word of God? Because I did these past two weeks, and it just really changed my demeanor. Could I have read that and been motivated to, to spend time with the Lord? I think we need to. Um, so to, to draw this, I guess, to a conclusion, turn over to Revelation chapter 3. Um, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't forget about the instructions Isaiah gave us to come, come, listen. Listen, behold, you see that in the first chapter of Revelation, how this is the message of Jesus. We just kind of uh, logically dissected that chapter from Isaiah, but this here now is who he was writing about. This, this is the man, this is the God, this is him. He wrote letters to seven churches. I think uh, at any time, any one of these churches could be us. In the, the feelings I was feeling the past two weeks of complacency, I want to read in ver, uh, chapter 3 and verse 14, starting with the church of Laodicea, who was um, quite lukewarm. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. So, the question I had, if I could hear Isaiah and be convicted now, I want to move that over and say, can I hear this, Jesus speaking, and can I be convicted to change so let's read this this way. And unto the church of the angel at Cornerstone today write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, guilty. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Bad place to be. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And I go and get easily distracted, uh, consuming things that aren't bread, Isaiah says. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I'm all of those. And I had then just the need to get thirsty and come to the waters. I counsel thee to buy of me gold, buy without money. Buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and come and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. He that hath an ear to hear what the Spirit saith, and he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Let's conclude in chapter 22 then while we're here in Revelation. Still remembering to be convicted, to be zealous, because this is what Jesus is calling us to. He said it himself through the Apostle John. Verse 17 uh, of chapter 22. And the Spirit, remember, come, listen, look. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And he that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things... God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things, Jesus Christ himself saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, 
We say, even so, Lord Jesus, come, because the distractions are many, like, like Jeff started off with. They are uh, sometimes blinding, and whatever it is, it could even be health struggles. Um, and I won't take those and, and say that that shouldn't be something that you have to deal with, but, but here's the answer, and it is the word. We can be, uh, as believers, support to others, but we need to be in the word. So in these last days, um, with all of the distractions that can take us away from the word, there's so much life here. There's so much to get excited about. I leave you with verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with us all. Amen. Let's, uh, let's have a song before we pray. Shall I call? 